He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the good portion given to us, causing our cup to run over. Feed us, we beg you. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Good evening, everyone. We're in the middle of summer, which means we're in the middle of ordinary time. And because we call it ordinary, it doesn't mean it's boring or ordinary, like, Jay is such an ordinary child, my parents were told. Just kidding, I was extraordinary. Um, I kid, I kid. I'm so glad to be back with you for tonight, and it will be gone again for a couple of weeks, but it's been good to rest. It's been good to uh, not think about work, not think about church things, but as soon as I sat down back at my desk this week to open up scriptures to study, I got this, this feeling in my bones, like from the Trolls movie. And I, but I did get excited about studying scripture, about getting to teach and preach to you tonight. So um, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be back. I may be a little loopy because I'm, I'm still on vacation mode a little bit, you know, finger guns, etc. So just bear with me. Um, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that I love poetry. And if, you've, and if you're new, now you know I love poetry. And the thing I love about poetry is it's the same thing that a great song does. Something happens inside me um, when I hear a great song. Like it it kind of takes me to another place. And when you read a great poem, whether it's an epic, or whether it's just a, a short sonnet, 
whether it's uh, modern uh, contemporary surrealist poetry or Leaves of Grass or whatever it is, whatever you read, it's good and it's beautiful and it communicates something more than just what the words can do. You, you take the words, yes, you take them at face value and what they mean, but you also let them sort of wash over you. You let the words do the work. And therefore, to, to enjoy poetry, at least for me, one who is slow of mind, I have to sit with it, sometimes for an agonizingly long time. But I have to sit with it. Now, tonight, I'm excited to tell you that Paul has written a poem. He's written a poem that scholars think it could be part of a preformed tradition, something that was circulating maybe as a hymn or a creed throughout the church, and he took part of it and inserted it into this letter to the Colossians. But let's just think that this is a poem written to this church in Colossae. Now, this church was wrestling with heresy. They were formerly pagans, so Gentile unbelievers. They had heard the gospel from a guy named Epaphras who had come from Ephesus as a result of Paul's ministry there. So offshoot of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, this church is planted. Paul hears about their love and the great things that God is doing in their midst, but he also hears about this heresy that we don't know exactly what it was. For a long time, we thought it was Gnosticism, but recent discoveries in Egypt of old documents about actual Gnostic beliefs tell us, no, it's actually probably not Gnosticism. It may be some sort of Jewish mysticism with some pagan witch doctoring mixed in. All we know is that it's got some Christianity in it. So Paul writes a poem to pagans, urging them to persist in the faith, formerly pagans. They're still not pagans because now they're Christians. So Paul writes a poem to former pagans, urging them to persist in the faith that they had heard, in the faith that they had received. Now, I want you to remember that image of sitting with a poem or sitting with a word. We'll come back to that in a minute. And let's just look for a few minutes at this poem. So if you've got your bulletin, it's there. The poem is verses, specifically verses 15 to 20. And we notice right off from the get-go, the subject of the poem is Jesus. And Paul is quick to come at them from this view that Jesus is not a separate God He's not one of a personality in the constellation of gods that you can pick from, as you so choose, Colossians. But Jesus is God, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here Paul uses a word that you and I might know, a word called icon. Maybe you learned that when you learned about windows. I don't know how old you are. Maybe you've heard of icons, sort of images used by the church to remind them of, of God's goodness and glory of saints that have gone before. And Paul says here in a very monotheistic way, he's not saying that Jesus is the invisible, he's not saying he's separate from the invisible God, but he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn communicating both priority and rank. Now we know that that Paul's writing about both creation, we're going to see in just a minute, and new creation. And so Jesus is involved, we'll see, in creation, but he's also the one who inaugurates, who pulls the lever, whose, whose life and death 
resurrection and ascension inaugurate this new creation, this new economy, this new reality that the Colossians know about. They've accepted it. They've followed it in faith, but for some reason they have fallen away. They have fallen prey to these teachings. So Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, Paul is not saying that when Jesus was born sometime around 0 AD, he was the firstborn of all creation. He's speaking of Jesus who has no beginning and therefore no end. Coming, he's the firstborn of this new creation that he's inaugurated, that he's making you and I sisters and brothers of. Because we know 0 AD was not before all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He's the firstborn. He is present in creation. We think of John's gospel in the beginning, meant to echo and mirror Genesis 1. In the beginning, there's this new creation. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, John reminded us in John 1 that no one has seen God. But Jesus has come so that we might see God, that we might know him. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. N.T. Wright makes a really interesting comment on this particular passage when he says, when we think about it, there are things that you and I can't see. There are dimensions. I mean, physicists acknowledge there are dimensions that we cannot see, that we can't even articulate or describe. And there are, we know there are things in the spiritual realm, and and we also know there are realms of power when you think of institutions, governments, etc. Everything that's ever been created, whether it acknowledges it or not, owes its existence to Christ the word of God, the wisdom of God, this one who is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we know that Paul is speaking into their formerly pagan context, whether rulers or authorities, thrones or dominions. Some people thought that this uh, sort of false uh, Christianity, pagan uh, mixed, you know, mystic Jewish stuff, had something to do with a lot of superstition, with calling on angels to keep evil spirits away. And Paul is reminding them that there is one you can call on who is above all those things. In fact, he made all those things. And they exist because he is. The poem goes on. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let your sort of meta brain dwell on that for a second. If ever there has been a cosmic statement with cosmic implications about who God is, about who Jesus is, the eternal word and only begotten son of God, verse 17 is one of those statements. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Thinking I was being very witty this week, I went and Googled second law of thermodynamics because somebody told me once that it mentions entropy, and entropy, someone else told me, is the tendency for things to fall apart. Yeah, I don't have any of these things firsthand. Can't understand those languages. But entropy, 
I'm told, because Wikipedia did not clear it up at all. I thought, we need some disambiguation, Wikipedia. Um, thank you, fellow wikis out there. Um, but entropy, as I'm told, is the tendency for things to fall apart, for things to come unglued, for things to not stay together. And think about what Paul is saying. In him, all things hold together. Now we know without the presence of God, without the Holy Spirit on this earth, without his body, though imperfect, still his church, his bride, without Christ's body on earth, the world would be a much different place. I always think of it as Biff Tannen's alternate reality in Back to the Future Part Two. But the world would not be as good. And we know that the world is plenty messed up. We know there is a lot of evil in the world. We know that there is a lot of unnecessary suffering, whether it be by disease or at the hands of other people. Imagine if Christ was not present, if his body was not the continuation of his incarnation. And now take that dystopian reality and insert this. In him, all things hold together. Imagine if by God's good pleasure, all of reality were not cohered around the reality of his being. That's why we sing things like, Lord, I need you. Not just because, oh, I feel like crap or I haven't prayed or, but it's like, literally, I don't know it, I don't acknowledge it because I'm forgetful, but I need you. Without you, I will literally fall apart. Friends, we come and we do the same thing every Sunday, don't we? It's very, it's very normal, same thing, liturgy, yada, yada, yada. We, go, we have different seasons, different contours, but we need to remind ourselves of these things that the one who holds all things together is also the well who pours out living water to us. He is the one in whom only we are satisfied. In him, all things hold together. The poem continues, and he is the head of the body, the church. The body, his body, is the church. Those gathered in his name, and under his love and forgiveness. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We think of Paul when he wrote 1 Corinthians 15, speaking clearly and beautifully about the gospel that he received and then talking about the resurrection and how Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the first fruits from the dead. And because he died and was raised again, he will never die again. And that death no longer has dominion over him. And one thing Paul is trying to get across, and we're going to see it later in our passage, is that because that reality is true for Jesus and because Jesus is in you, that reality is so for you. Paul will say it like this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, I've got a lot of great things going for me, but the greatest thing is Jesus Christ in me, the hope of glory. Without that, everything would fall apart. Without his loving rule and reign, all the good things that I know and cherish and love and own would go fleeting away without his goodness. And because he's the firstborn from the dead, we are invited 
into this new creation. Because friends, one day, though we will die, we will rise again. And John says, when we see him, we will be like him. This is a good poem. This is the kind of thing that Paul sets aside in such a way as to say, think on this, memorize this, meditate on this. You need this more than you know, Colossians. If we had any doubt about Paul's monotheism, verse 19 puts that to rest, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, this Jesus, this image of the invisible God is not just one God among many. He's not part of a pagan cultic worship universe. He is God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fully human, fully God. It's a mystery and we rest in it. We receive it, we trust it, we rest in it. Fully human, fully God. And this is where the human part comes in. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. Jesus is uniquely qualified to do the work of reconciliation. He is the wisdom of God, he is the word of God, and he is the one who will offer himself as a ransom for redemption, to buy back, to retrieve, to rescue those who are dead and sin, you and me and the whole world. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I love it here because Paul continues to reiterate that there is an invisible world that we can't see, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Obviously, the Colossians were dialed into that somehow. Perhaps this was part of the heresy that they had fallen into. Albeit, we need to remember that there is a whole spiritual world around us that we cannot see. And Jesus Christ is Lord over those things. He has power over those things. And he is reconciling to himself all things by the blood of his cross. So through his humanity, through his shed blood, in his full divinity and full humanity, he is making peace. He is reconciling. He is set, as, as Wright, Tom Wright would say, he is setting things right. He is bringing vindication. And that's inaugurated now. Now, this is a beautiful poem that Paul wrote, and who, to whom did he write it? To pagans, formerly pagans. But still, they've got this pagan background, and it's important for you to know that, because this is their language. You know, they're thinking pagan thoughts. They're doing pagan things. And they're afraid of being pagans again. So Paul is comforting them with the reality of who Jesus is. And verse 21, he goes into addressing these pagans and their former pagan selves. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Wright notes that when Paul uses the word mind, he doesn't just mean their, their thoughts they were thinking, but really the sort of whole process by which they engaged in intellectual discourse. 
their whole culture. You once were alienated because your mind, you didn't have, as uh, Tim Keller says, you didn't have the mental furniture to understand this invisible God of whom Jesus is the image of, through whom God is reconciling to himself all things, in whom all things are held together. You didn't have that once before when you were pagans. You were doing evil deeds, verse 22. But he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and approach before him. Paul is reminding them, hey guys, this is the reality. You used to do those things. You used to think that way. You used to be captured in this never-ending cycle of fatalism. But now you've been reconciled. You've been presented to God blameless because of his death for you. You're part of this new creation following the firstborn from the dead. Realize the reality of where you are. And that's what I say to us tonight. That's why I prayed what I prayed. I was on vacation for a couple of weeks and I didn't think about work stuff. And I wasn't probably super spiritual. I didn't pray every day like I do when I'm here. I let my mind go, kind of my disciplines or whatever. And I needed to be reminded of this kind of thing. That if I'm thirsty or hungry or tired or worn out, that I can come to the well. That I'm not meant to stay in what I did before. So these former pagans live in this new state, holy and blameless. They're above reproach in him. Did you notice Psalm 15? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can abide in his holy temple? Jesus. I'll just give you the answer. It's rhetorical. It's part of the community's speech, you know, maybe a call and response the way the psalmist wrote it. Who can ascend to his holy mountain? Who can abide in his temple? And they respond, he who is clean, upright heart, etc. But the answer is Jesus. He's the only one that can do that. And he does that for us. And he calls us with him into that place. That is our reality. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul puts a little a positive phrase, if you can call it that, in verse 23. This is where you stand, and if, if indeed you continue in the faith. In other words, this is the same guy, Paul's the same guy that wrote, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. We know that. So Paul's not saying God's not going to bring it to completion. He's saying be careful and be watchful as you work out your salvation in fear and trembling, another Philippians phrase. As you do that, persevere, persist. Don't give up. Something we may notice about faith that doesn't go all the way is that it's not real. Jesus said it like this. You're going to know people by their fruit. The poem to the former pagans encourages them to persist. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Hmm. Stable. Steadfast not like my microphone right now on my face. Not shifting from the hope 
of the gospel that you heard. Hmm. What does it look like for you? And this is part of our conclusion, so I'm jumping the gun a little bit. But what does it look like for you to have hope in something? What does that do for you emotionally? Physically, how does that change your behavior when you put your hope in something? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. (laughs) Again, Paul hits the cosmic button. This gospel has been proclaimed everywhere in all of creation. Now, we know logically when Paul wrote that, that may not make complete sense. Really, has everyone in all creation heard the gospel at this point? Paul writing around in the 50s AD? At some point, all of creation will hear the gospel. It has to do with that new creation reality that Jesus has inaugurated and is inviting us into and is inviting the people of East Dallas into. That's why he put us there, just as a quick reminder, as St. Bart's, we're here to be a place to connect with the people of East Dallas and connect them with the living God so that we may behold God and become more like him. We want to create a hospitable, rooted environment where people who are being drawn to the Lord Jesus can come and worship and know other people and be known by him. To try to put our arms around the mystery of who God is, knowing that we'll never be able to do it completely one day. Hmm. Paul writes this beautiful poem to former pagans to encourage them to persist, to maintain. And that's the exact posture that he calls us into. We don't run from him and hide, but when we see our Abba Father, as Paul says, we say it, Abba, Father, just like Amelia said, Daddy. Daddy. <laughs> Remember I said, the thing I love about a poem is that I have to sit with it. We think about Mary in the gospel lesson. And I don't know much about Mary, but we know she had a sister, Martha, who was really keyed up about getting that falafel and hummus ready. And she was mad at Mary. And Mary took the position of a disciple, which would have been quite presumptuous. And just think about the the, the presumption of Amelia. When she saw her dad just now, all she could do is say, Daddy. And Mary recognized something in Jesus. She probably couldn't use the words that Paul used. Many of these words, words never used ever again in Holy Scripture. But she had a sense of the reality of exactly who Jesus was. And so in a very presumptuous, uh, non-decorous way, she just sits at Jesus' feet. Guys, if there's ever a word worthy of pondering, it's our Lord Jesus. If there's ever a poem worthy of, of mental sweat and anguish to gaze upon, to see his beauty, It is our Lord Jesus. Most of us are probably not former pagans, but we can still hear Paul's poem, and we can still hear him calling us, too, to persist as we behold that word. Let us pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for rescuing us. 
Lord, we thank you for calling us here tonight. What a beautiful, beautiful group of people in a beautiful place. We thank you that our being is held together in you, that St. Bart's is held together in you, that Dallas, the United States of America, the, the whole universe, all galaxies, stars, constellations, everything is held together in you, and we rejoice in you, and we surrender ourselves to you in your goodness and power. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.